Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Welcome you to Glocal. This is our brand new series, really describing our vision to become a local church with a global influence. If you're new to our church, you actually have come at a great time uh, because today you're going to get a glimpse really into the global heartbeat of our, of our church here. We're a local church, but we have people in Morristown, New Jersey, all the way to Melbourne, Australia. And we are one very diverse body, but we are committed to one very distinct thing, and that is following Jesus and being his literal hands and feet to serve a thirsty world. And that's one of the reasons our name is Liquid Church. But the heartbeat of our church is not, as some a lot of people guess, they think church, they think religion. And uh, that may be a shock to some of you. One of our purposes, though, of Liquid is really to get back to the, the true heart of Christianity, which is really demonstrating the grace of God through serving a world that really is thirsty for grace and just desperate to hear that there's more to life than just rules and, and regulations, but there, there's life, and, and, and Jesus came to give us this, this, this life that's supposed to brim like living water. So at our church, we don't just talk about faith. In fact, in many ways, religion is not about what you say, but about what you do. The writer James, he puts it this way in his, uh, his epistle. He writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Let's read this together to what? Look after orphans and widows in their distress. And then the verse goes on and says, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, if you drain all of religion from the theological hype, the doctrinal differences, it's like, how can you tell if someone is truly an authentic follower of Christ? Not just like Christian in like word, but actually in action. James says you can test it this way. God our Father accepts pure and faultless practice of religion this way. To look after, and he says orphans and widows. In other words, you will see the pure and untainted face of Christ and the lives of those who live to serve people who can't possibly pay them back. Take widows and orphans, for instance, people who are impoverished or have little to offer in return. When you see someone spending their life to love and care and show compassion for people who can't possibly pay them back, that's when you know it's real, when it's pure, what God our Father deems true religion, faultless, untainted, the essence of Christian compassion. I'm, I'm privileged to call my uh, friend today, Scott Harrison, one of those practitioners of true religion. He's not a priest. He's not a pope. Scott, though, is an incredible guy. And some of you have met him before. Maybe you'll recognize his work from uh, Good Morning America, the Today Show, or you may have seen uh, some of it on the most recent episode of American Idol, Gives Back. And he will likely tell you that he doesn't have it all straightened out, and, and he's still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, just like the rest of us. But he's in it for real. He's making a di difference. Actually, better said, God is making a difference through him in a big way. In his 20s, Scott was a nightclub promoter here in, uh, in New York City, and he had a pretty radical and life-changing encounter with the living God. It was an experience, actually, which wound up taking him halfway around the world to the Horn of Africa as a photojournalist, and literally from there changed his life forever. And now, even though he's only in his 30s, through Scott's life, the lives of people around the globe are being changed, impacted. The lives of the least of these, orphans, widows, in fact, entire villages of the dispossessed and underserved around the world, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Scott is committed to providing the world's poorest with one of the most basic resources imaginable, liquid. I know this says diesel fuel, but that's not what these are used for in the third world. H2O, pure and faultless. He is the founder of the humanitarian nonprofit Charity Water, and we are thrilled, and we can't wait to partner with him as a church. So Scott's been a friend of Liquid for several years, and I asked him here this morning for the kickoff of our series Global to really just do two things. One, simply share his God story with us, and he's going to show it to you. And then two, to invite our church to dream big. What could we do together locally to have an impact globally for Christ. Would you please give a warm, liquid welcome to my friend Scott Harrison. Got it? Good to have you, buddy. Awesome. Hey, guys. Super uh, excited to be here, and uh, thanks, Tim, for having me. And I think the last time uh, I spoke here, I was, uh, you guys were in a a church, where was that place? Mill? 
Basking Ridge, yeah. Um, I'm going to try and explain what these yellow cans are about and, and sort of take you on a, a bit of an immersive experience about, um, about water today. But first, I just want to tell you a little bit about, about why I'm here and, and what God did in my life. Um, I, uh, I was a nightclub promoter. So uh, nightclub promoters normally don't uh, care about anything else except themselves. And uh, I'm going to show you guys a little bit about that. I, um, I was raised uh, in a Christian home. When I was about four years old, my mom became um, very, very ill. Uh, there was a carbon monoxide gas leak in our house. And she sucked in this carbon monoxide, um, got what was called carboxyhemoglobin poisoning. Um, fancy word for basically a dead immune system. And she passed out and was taken to the hospital. And um, the doctors realized there wasn't really anything they could do for her. Um, this damage um, to the carbon monoxide was, uh, was irreparable. And my parents um, had this amazing faith. You know, they believed that there was a reason for this. They didn't sue the gas company for millions of dollars on the advice of some Christian friends. And I grew up in this, this family with, uh, you know, with faith and, and uh, just this constant prayer that one day my mom would be healed. Well, fast forward to, you know, a teenager. I'm sort of in the worship choir and I'm the perfect, uh, perfect sort of, you know, kid growing up and the perfect Christian. And then at 18, um, I decided uh, it was time to live for me. And I'd grown up taking care of mom. And so I moved to New York City. Um, I was in a band. My hand, hair was down to here, uh, which was not a good decision. And uh, we started playing gigs in, in New York. And um, gosh, we were, uh, we, were, we were good, but we were terrible um, with each other. We didn't like each other. Uh, we didn't turn up <laughs> to gigs on time. And, and we wound up breaking up. And um, at, at about 18, I realized that the guy booking our band was making a ton of money. Um, and that maybe this was uh, better than actually being in a band. So I became a nightclub promoter um, three years before I was even able to legally drink in, uh, in a club. And um, wound up really spending 10 years um, just living as decadently as, um, as possible. And I was, I was really the, the most selfish, arrogant person that I knew. Um, you know, life looked great on the outside. You know, people wanted to be me. I had, you know, I drove a BMW. I had a great loft. I had a Labrador retriever, you know, the perfect girlfriend that was on billboards. And, um, you know, I had arrived. I had a disposable income and pretty much whatever I wanted to buy, um, I could. And, um, and I, uh, I just really turned my back on God and um, had just pushed him so far into a corner, you know, year by year by year. That um, you know, there was there was nothing in my life that would have spoken to to the way I grew up. And my parents just prayed and prayed and prayed. And uh, you know, they they loved me. I mean, I would call them just to sort of taunt them. It's like, oh, I'm flying to Paris for Fashion Week, and I've been up for three days. <laughs> and um, they would just uh, they would just pray. And at 28 years old, uh, exactly 10 years in the biz. I was in South America for one of those perfect vacations, and we had servants in the house. Um, I remember spending $1,100 on fireworks, um, you know, to waste gunpowder in the sky uh, for no reason. And it just hit me there how, um, how really miserable I was and how, you know, it's, it's such a cliche. I remember, like, listening to, you know, people come in and talk about, like, the hole in your heart. I was like, yeah, right, you know? But... Uh, it was true, you know, there was, uh, there was just this sort of void that um, I hadn't found in the world. And, and um, I was doing a lot of cocaine on that trip, and I was reading uh, the Bible and Tozer, which is like pretty hardcore theology. Somehow that landed in my, in my bag. So I'm reading Pursuit of God, you know, during the day with a hangover and doing lots of great cocaine at night. And, um, and that's where the, the push-pull really started. Um, I started praying again. I came back to New York and I was determined to change my life and to um, try and serve God again after 10 years of being away. Um, the problem was I sold alcohol and, uh, and a lifestyle of drugs and escapism for a living. And um, I do think that there are a few things you can't do and be a Christian. I don't think you can be in the pornography business. Don't think you can um, run nightclubs, really. Uh, you know, the more success for me looked like you know, guys coming to cheat on their wife with, you know, 18-year-old models at one in the morning. And um, the problem also was I didn't know how to do anything else. You know, I wasn't a doctor. I wasn't a lawyer. Um, you know, I didn't know what I would replace this income with um, at 28 years old. You know, I was really good at getting a 1,000 people 
to, uh, to come to a club and spend, you know, $15 on a drink. But um, I wasn't really good at, at many other things. So, um, so this battle goes on, and I'm, I'm praying to God, and, and you know, I, I wish I could say that I came back to New York after that and stopped everything. I didn't. Uh, my heart was starting to come back, but, you know, I was still doing plenty of drugs and um, really uh, was seeking God to, to find the way out. And um, wound up getting even more involved in the nightclub business. Someone offered us a partnership in a restaurant and said, hey... Um, you know, you attach your name to this and we'll give you 10% of the business. And I remember asking God, it's like, is that, is that it? You know, <laughs> that seems like I'm getting even deeper in. And um, one night I was out with the owner of that restaurant um, at a very trendy sort of exclusive club and um, he wasn't known there. And one of the bouncers came up to him and uh, said, you know, hey, who are you? And I'm going to basically throw you out of this club unless you give me money, which is a pretty bizarre thing. So I had come out of the bathroom and he says, hey, you know, I know you know everyone here. Why don't you stand up for my honor? We're partners now. So I do, you know, I'm wasted. It's two in the morning. I get in this bouncer's face and I was like, I'm going to have you fired. You know, you picked on the wrong guy. This guy's my friend and partner in the new restaurant. And um, I did get him fired. Um, I made one call and, and uh, he was fired. And the next night he came looking for me with a gun. Um, he was not happy about being fired. The, uh, the only problem was he came looking for me in the back of a New York City police car. So uh, there was a lot more going on um, in that club, uh, and I didn't really know it. And I'd sort of opened up this can of worms by losing this guy's job. And, uh, you know, in the nightclub business, your life is threatened all the time. Uh, you know, you're standing outside the door, and someone's like, you know, I, I want to come in, and you say no. And they say, I'm going to shoot you, you know. And I've probably been threatened, you know, 50 or 60 times. But this time really felt different. So I um, got in a, rented a car and drove upstate, and it was like, I'm just going to take a few weeks off, um, let my partner cover for me. And, um, and it was then, it was a couple weeks later, um, just sitting in the mountains, you know, I brought a bottle of Dewar's with me and a Bible, <laughs> and I realized that was it. I mean, God was sort of handing me this out on a plate. And, um, you know, I wound up talking to the guy and saying, look, dude, I'm sorry you lost your job for stealing, but, you know whatever, kill me. And, uh, and I felt like he actually didn't want to kill me anymore, and I wound up trying to set him up with another job at a nightclub um, that I didn't like. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so that was sort of out of, you know, super crisis mode, and he probably would have tried to punch me if he saw me, but um, I never went back after that. You know, I, I, I felt a little like Lot. You know, I felt rescued from, you know, from this sort of decadence around me and, and an industry that, you know, I would never be able to to give God my heart while being in. And, um, you know, then I sort of said, well, now what? You know, I'm out of New York. That feels sort of great. And and what am I going to do? So I uh, I sort of cut this deal with God. And I said, I want my life to look exactly the opposite. You know, I want to find the 180. And the 180 uh, to me looked like actually serving the poor. Um, And I said, God, I want to do it in the the poorest country in the world. Well, start looking... uh, to be a humanitarian as a nightclub promoter, and you've got some surprises. Nobody wants a nightclub promoter anywhere near their humanitarian organization, especially not a faith-based one. So, uh, you know, I'm looking at, like, Samaritan's Purse and World Vision, and, you know, they want, you know, nine years' experience of, like, you know, interior liaison with the Ministry of, you know, Sudan or something. And I'm like, dude, I can throw a party. (laughs) So, uh, so... You know, it's funny, all my eggs are sort of in, I, I'm Googling one day, I Googled hospital ships, because in the back of my mind, um, I heard that there was this organization um, that operated on some of the poorest people in the world, and it was doctors that flew all over from around the world, and they gave up their time to operate, and so I found them, they were called Mercy Ships, and I was like, hey, great, you know, maybe I should volunteer, found out that the volunteers had to pay $500 a month for the pleasure of volunteering. So I said, well, that's great. That is exactly opposite. So I don't even make money. I don't, you know, stay even. I actually lose money being on this ship. So I apply, and I remember the application was, uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of things on there I didn't want to answer. It was like, do you smoke? At the time, I was smoking two packs a day. So I wrote two packs of Marlboros. And, uh, you know, do you drink? I think I wrote excessively. (laughs) Have you done drugs? You know, I think I listed a bunch of drugs. that I had tried. And, and then I wrote this really um, heartfelt essay about, you know, wanting to give my life back to God and 
Well, they took the application and they buried it. You know, they're like, this guy is getting nowhere near our organization. And I had applied to be uh, the photojournalist on the ship. Once, um, the, once a year, the, the ship takes on a photographer, and that photographer is responsible for pretty much documenting everything that goes on. And uh, it's a big operation. So I actually wasn't a photographer either. Um, I had taken vacation photos and put them up online and sort of blog and said, you know, this is my portfolio. So months later, uh, nothing's happening. You know, I'm, I'd left New York in faith. I'm hanging out in the south of France at a friend's house, I'm pretty much spending anything that I had saved, which was very little. And I um, just remember crying out to God, like, wow, you know, what am I going to do? Be like a waiter in Spain or something? And uh, I was driving down, driving my bike down a mountain. There was no cell phone reception where I was. And as I came through this small town, maybe eight miles down the mountain, my phone rang. And uh, I remember, like, almost falling off the bike because I hadn't talked to anyone uh, in, in weeks on the phone. And, and it was Mercy Ships. And strangely enough, um, for one of the first times in the organization, they couldn't find another photographer. Uh, this is normally the most sought-after position. And they decided not to hire me, but to meet me. <laughs> So I, uh, a few days later, was on the ship, and I convinced them that I would not throw wild parties, and I actually did want to serve the poor and serve God. And, um, and that's sort of where this, this story starts, um, in pictures. Um, if we can go to the screens. This was me for about 10 years at my best. This is a club called La Suite in, in Paris. And um, from this to October 2004, um, we went to two countries in West Africa, a place called Benin and a place called um, Liberia. And this was the ship. 350 doctors, surgeons, nurses, um, some of them giving up two weeks, some of them giving up 23 years to uh, just serve the poorest people in the world. Liberia was a pretty cool place before the war. This is their intercontinental hotel in the 70s. Um, at the top of the mountain, you can see Mercedes in the driveway. This is the hotel when I photographed it after 14 years of civil war. Some of you guys might have heard about Charles Taylor. Um, just, you know, it started one civil war that led to like nine. And um, when I found the, the, the country, it had no electricity, no running water, no sewage, and no mail. And um, this was that same pool before and after. Pretty much everything was shot up. So bullets through, you know, lampposts, taxis. You can see the two buildings behind, uh, stripped of the metal and the glass. Um, from the rebels. This was an apartment building where 800 people lived. You know, babies hanging out, no glass to stop them from falling. This was a house. And uh, even the, the port where the ship um, was docked was just a disaster, sunken ship after sunken ship. So I wasn't really prepared for what I was meant to be doing, which was photographing some of the most horrific conditions um, among the poorest people in the world. And how it worked is we would flyer the country. So about three months before the ship would sail in, these would be posted. And, uh, you know, stuff that I'd never heard of, like tumors, flesh-eating disease, uh, you know, cleft palates. I mean, I'd never seen a cleft palate in an adult in my life. And um, the idea was, you know, hey, if you've got one of these conditions, turn up on this day, and maybe our doctors will be able to help you. And my third day in Africa, I took this picture of 7,000 people that came to see uh, our doctors, and they came from you know five or six neighboring countries. Some of them had walked weeks, um, and these were actually the people that we turned away. Of the 7,000 people that came, we could help about 2,000 of them. This was the first child I photographed. It was a kid called Alfred. This is about 5:30 in the morning, and um, he's 14, and he was suffocating to death with a benign tumor. Uh, the doctors weren't sure why these tumors were caused. Um, half of the doctors thought. It was a lack of clean water. And the other half said, hey, there's just no access to medical care. So when something goes wrong um, here, we immediately take care of it. And there, um, it just grows and grows. So, you know, I was sobbing the first day. I remember just, you know, I couldn't take it. And the, the chief medical officer tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, you better toughen up, boy, because you're going to see a lot of this over the next year. A week later, he operated on Alfred, and I got to take him home a few weeks later. So I learned how these stories would end. You know, they would end um, magically. And this is him now. Um, he has a, a, a thriving life. Um, he's in school. He's doing well in school. Um, he can speak and he can eat. Fine. P 
patient after patient. This was Martheline. Everyone had an amazing story. Uh, she had had this tumor for more than 15 years. Actually had bought poison, tried to kill herself, and her sister found the poison, stopped her, and brought her to the ship. And in about an hour and a half, um, doctors took the tumor out. How a seven-year-old girl, um, she came from Sierra Leone to Liberia. Her father fought with the border guards to get her across the border um, and said, hey, there's this ship. I know that this ship can help my daughter. And uh, a week later, cleft lips, you know, something so common here. One out of every 900 American kids born with a cleft. And uh, it's no big deal. You know, your kid stays in the hospital. Surgery's done at two to four weeks. And um, in Africa, you grow up sometimes to be 60 years old um, without an access to a 40-minute surgery that costs about $300. So we found this woman, Senade, in the bush and um, brought her on the ship and then took her home. And it was a huge celebration, um, even at the end of her life. So there were tons and tons of, of these stories. Um, I think I took 50,000 photos in the first eight months I was in Africa on the ship. And, um, uh, you know, I, I could do five hours on these people and their stories. Um, some of them had nothing but their faith. You know, we would hear people say, you know, I, I, I know there's no doctor in the country that can help. You know, I pray the doctors would come from afar to help me. And, uh, you know, sort of exactly what happened. Um, the ship sailed in. Started uh, learning about water in um, Liberia. My best friend on the ship um, was my age, and he was the well digger. And the ship said, hey, well, we're here anyway. We might as well um, start working in the communities. So he would go and uh, take me into the villages, and we'd see people drinking out of swamps. And we're sort of like, no wonder everyone is sick if this is the only water that they have. And he would work with the communities. Um, told me that 80% of all disease in the world is actually caused by bad water and a lack of sanitation, basically a lack of toilets. Um, so he would work with the communities and they would um, dig wells. They would tap into the clean groundwater and you know, a month later there would be this miracle of clean water for a few thousand dollars. So that was my first taste of that. Came back to New York City after eight months on the ship and I remember saying, uh, I will not be culture shocked because everybody would talk about it and say, you know, you're going to come back and you're just not going to be able to fit in. I was like, listen, I, I know... I'll be fine. You know, I sold $300 bottles of vodka in clubs. I came back, and three hours after being in New York, someone bought me a $16 margarita. And, you know, the world's just really collided for me. You know, $16, I could feed four people in Liberia for a month. And it was a drink um, at the Soho House in New York without tip. And I really just wanted to, to use the images I'd taken to... Um, to shake my friends up, really, and to inspire compassion, and then to, to help more people um, in Africa. So I created this show called Mercy, and this concept of, um, of just God's heart for the poor, really, that I'd seen. And, and instead of it being a depressing show, I wanted it to be an uplifting show. You know, this is what happens when people leave their comfortable lives and go serve. You know, miracles happen every day. So I got a gallery in New York to donate $50,000 of space and hung a show. I remember we had no idea what we were doing. We were like Googling for how high to <laughs> hang the art, you know, 52 inches, the Smithsonian said, you know, it was, it was really pretty hack. Um, but really the walls just held the stories of the people that I'd met um, in their own words. And um, it did wonders for, for awareness. You know, we got 20 some media um, placements for, for Mercy Ships. A lot of people had never heard of Mercy Ships um, after 25 years of doing this remarkable work. And then um, I asked my friends to give um, through the gallery, and $96,000 was raised. So, you know, the light went on. Wow, if people hear true stories, they do want to help. And um, that money was given to Mercy Ships for more surgeries. At a decision to make, and, you know, would I go back to nightclubs? Well, that was never an option. Um, so what I did was went back to Liberia, and I had all this money taken from my friends, and I really wanted to connect people um, in New York you know, they were having these $16 cocktails with what their money could do back in Liberia. So I spent another six months on the ship um, doing pretty much the same thing, documenting surgeries, befores and afters. And then I left Mercy Ships. And while I was um, walking on a beach one day, you know, I really, uh, a vision is strong, but I, I felt like I was saying, I want you to do this for the rest of your life. I've given you the, the skills and the audience, um, so there's no going back. And I came to New York I put this slide in because I always forget to talk about my mom, <laughs> which I was just about to do again. After 28 years, my mom was healed while I was on the ship. 
And um, I came back to a well mom. Doctors didn't know what happened. Um, through that time, she was gradually um, not allergic to all the things that made her allergic. And she went from you know, becoming an invalid living in a room to having dinner with me when I came back. Um, so she'll actually be here at the night service, which is pretty cool. But uh, she was healed. And I, I, I mean, I just didn't, it was so bizarre, like coming back and, and um, I mean, she came to the show, you know, my mom had never been in New York City, you know, she, uh, she was an isolated person. So what to do? Um, and, and what would that look like? You know, my, my vision was bigger than, than Mercy Ships. And um, I just felt like God wanted me to step out in faith and start a charity. Um, Tim stole my verse this morning, but this was it. James 127. <laughs> this happens a lot, by the way. It's like, oh, Scott, what verse are you going to be talking about? And then, uh, you know, God said um, true religion is, is looking after the poor. And, uh, you know, I, I just took this verse simply to mean, you know, your relationship with the poor and your relationship with God. And, um, you know, that keeping oneself from being unpolluted is the, the hard part of this verse, you know, especially in New York City, you know, back among all my friends. You know, I wanted, I wanted charity to look like this. You know, I, I figured that if we could actually live this out, people would respond and, um, and they would see the heart of God and, and how much he cares for the poor. Um, all these different issues, education and AIDS and malaria, all this stuff I'd seen, you know, what, what would I tackle? Like what, what would my life be about? And it just, uh, it just came straight down to water. You know, I remember at one point, all these words were up on a, on a wall and, and water was going to be it. So I started charity water and, and the idea was to try and give um, the, everybody in the world access to, to something I'd had all my life. Right now, a billion people, 1.1 billion people on the planet do not have clean water to drink, which is one in six people. It's the population of the entire U.S. and Europe combined um, is actually less than the amount of people on earth that don't have clean water to drink, something you know, we pretty much do take for granted. The jerry can, um, you see them around, um, you saw them in the opening video, you know, this is something I had never in my life associated with water. You know, I grew up putting gasoline in these cans and, um, you know, taking it out to the riding mower and, and you know, <laughs> mowing the lawn for three hours. And, and I saw people putting water in these things and then carrying them. Water that wasn't even clean. Um, we are using a ton of water in the U.S. We use about 150 gallons of clean water per person per day. And that's just taking the total water use of the states divided by the population. Those 1.1 billion people don't have five gallons, a minimum of five gallons all day to cook, clean, drink, and wash. And I took a camera and started trying to tell the water story and, and find the people that, that we would help and, um, and the organizations that we would help them through. So I went first to northern Uganda and I saw eight-hour lines um, in the refugee camps in the north, people waiting eight hours for water. And then because there wasn't enough water, they would dig holes. And uh, like animals, the women would scoop out this water that you know, we wouldn't even walk in. You know, we wouldn't give to our animals. We saw kids you know, should be in school spending three hours a day back and forth on the road carrying 20 to 40 pounds of dirty water. You can actually see the blue can says diesel fuel, super XD. That was what was in that can before the water that she carries now. Went to Rwanda next and um, I still... I haven't seen dirtier water than this. Guys my age um, with no choice but to take mud home. And most people say, hey, well, you know, don't they boil this water? Um, often they don't have the money to buy the charcoal um, to boil the water. You know, if you've ever put a big pot of water on the stove to boil pasta, you know, it takes 15 minutes. Um, boiling five gallons of water is an incredible uh, amount of energy, and they just can't afford to buy that charcoal. So what they do is they pour it through T-shirts. The women will pull out their dresses and pour the water through. And you can actually see it's a little, looks a little cleaner at the bottom, but it doesn't take out any of the contaminants. This is that water hole. Um, started learning about water just as this incredible impediment to education. You know, these kids should be in school. They should be getting educated so they can, you know, help lift their country out of poverty. And instead, their day is spent going back and forth, back and forth to get this cloudy white water. You know, so the future of Rwanda um, stuck in a mud hole, basically. Then to Ethiopia, um, this was the source of 5,000 um, in a town called Bogeta, um, algae-covered swamp. This is in the north, 
800 people lived in this place, Tashameni. Kids and cows drinking from the same spots. There are a ton of waterborne diseases. Um, they start with diarrhea, they go all the way down to blindness. And um, I'll highlight one, worms, something we would never really associate with water. Um, and, and 160 million people in the world are infected with parasites, schistosomiasis. And um, if you can see this child's feet are swollen, he actually has worms crawling around in his feet and his intestines um, because of the water that he scoops from the ground. This place uh, was called Gazi Springs. Oh, I don't know what happened with these. Women basically um, giving mud to their babies. In this place, the boy told us um, leeches were his biggest problem. Something also we probably would never associate with, uh, with water. So the solutions for millions and millions of these people was, uh, was, was building wells. Um, not dissimilar to how we get our clean water here. Um, if you live upstate in New York or in parts of rural Jersey, you buy a house and you dig a well in your backyard, and that's how you get all of your water. Um, in Africa, it looks a little different. Um, it's, it's a community participation, and, um, and it's a hand-dug well um, that costs about $5,000, and the whole community gets involved. The, the people there are so willing to work. Um, they're willing to learn. Um, they just need the, the training, and they need the materials. So uh, a hand-dug well is basically a big hole. Um, takes a month, six stories deep, and then you hit clean groundwater. These culverts line the hole, and they're made on site. So most of that cost is actually a concrete cost. And then you've got the whole community involved, about 20 guys on one side, 20 guys on the other side, lowering these, um, these culverts, one on top of each other. They weigh about 60, sorry, 650 pounds each. After um, the culverts go in, um, gravel is poured in. So the gravel acts as the nat natural filter in the bottom and in the sides. A pump is put in, and that just brings the clean water out of the grounds. And a month later, Problem is solved for that village. Now the output on these wells is absolutely incredible. Um, about 700,000 gallons of clean water a year. So that's, um, that's more than 5 million Poland Springs every year coming out of a well. No electricity, no gas, just um, hand pump at about 5 gallons a minute. Sometimes um, the water is deeper and you can't get at it by hand and then um, the wells get more expensive, but a rig is brought in and um, a team will drill a, a much narrower hole and then these culverts are put in. You can actually see the grooves in the side. That's where the water comes in. And then, uh, you know, we like to say water changes everything. We've seen it um, time and time again in these communities. Clean water gushing out of the ground, um, the dignity that comes with clean water, the education that's made possible with clean water. It brings the communities together. Um, the women that, you know, are, are sometimes, the women and kids, as they walk three hours, four hours, sometimes into the jungle, you know, they're exposed to rape. They're supposed to attack. Um, we were just in Ethiopia, and uh, the women were telling us that they were most afraid of hyenas attacking them because they shared the same water hole with the hyenas. So the wells change that. These wells are, you know, they're in schools, they're in the clinics, um, they're in the churches, they're in the town center. Um, and they're managed by a committee. So eight people are trained on how to take care of the water. And then it's just awesome to watch the stuff happen on the back of clean water, sanitation. Um, sometimes like things as simple as hand washing have never been taught because there's never been clean water to wash your hands. And who would want to go to a mud hole and, you know, and, and bathe? And, and we've seen skin diseases, you know, kids <laughs> that have, haven't washed themselves in two months and their bodies just break out with these awful infections. The clean water changes all that. So I wanted to do things a little differently. One of the strongest experiences had been the, the second six months on the ship and taking pictures and sending it back to my friends that had given. So everything the Charity Water did had to be proved. And we said, hey, let's use technology 
um, and we're going to be building wells. Let's, um, let's GPS them. Let's put them up on Google Earth. You know, the first time I was on Google Earth, I thought, what an amazing platform for humanitarians to connect people here to the projects in the field. So every well that we built um, would just simply have a picture of the well, the GPS coordinate, the name of the community, and the people served there. So this is where I think it gets exciting. So um, I'm just going to lead you guys through some of the things that we did, and, um, and hopefully you can see God's hand in all of this, um, remembering my background as a nightclub promoter, um, starting a charity. One of the other things, and this was a crazy move, but really felt like um, we, we wanted to do it differently and give away 100% of the money that we raised publicly. And, um, and that would take backing from somewhere. So we said, hey, let's, um, let's go find our money for staff separately, um, even our money to fly to develop these water projects. Let's, let's go and, and fund ourselves separately so that 100% of the money we take from the public will go directly to build these wells, and then we'll prove the wells. Well, I'll explain how difficult that got a little later. This was the first idea. How about a $20 bottle of water um, to not only sort of fly in the face of, of the plenty that we have here, you know, we, we have fine tap water in New York City, and uh, yet we walk around with Poland Spring all day long. So we, we were sort of saying, hey, if you're going to drink bottled water, you should pay a, a poor tax. So pay 20 times what you would, and um, we'll give away 100% of that money. So we started marking a bottle of water in, in hotel bars, in mini bars, in um, spas and salons, to anybody that would sell this. Launched very fittingly with a party. It was my 31st birthday party. Back in the clubs, got 700 friends to turn up. Everybody bought one of these bottles of water on their way in, and um, we didn't raise much. We raised $15,000. Um, we took the money immediately to northern Uganda to a camp called Bobi, a refugee camp called Bobi, where 31,638 people were registered. And um, we used the money to do three new wells and fix three broken wells. And then we took the pictures and we sent them back to everybody that attended the party. A lot of people did not remember attending the party. A lot of people did not remember giving $20, but you know, we, we really found this connection in um, saying, hey, you came, you did something small, and, and something happened on the other side of the world. Here are the wells built. Here's the clean water coming out of the ground because you gave a little bit. Second big idea was, let's do another exhibition, but instead of doing it indoors and waiting for people to come to us, let's put it in the face of, uh, of New Yorkers. So, you know, crazy idea for this, you know, sculpture and, you know, the water tower that you see in the middle. Um, my first idea was a refrigerated water dispenser that you would put $20 in and a bottle would pop out. And then someone told me it would cost about $200,000 to build. <laughs> so we settled for a piece of tin duct with Velcro dots and empty bottles <laughs> as the tower that cost about a few hundred dollars to build. And got our friends um, to make this exhibition. It lived on a truck that was donated. And we just, um, you can see the tanks. Uh, the little green bits, that's dirty water from the East River, from the Hudson River, from a pond in New Jersey and a pond in Long Island. And we put that against the photos of what um, we saw people drinking and then asked people to buy $20 bottles of water on the streets. The city was amazing, waived tons of permit fees. I think we got our permits for $75 at the end. And um, sold $19,000 of water. Again, not a huge amount of money, but more importantly, 15,000 people came, um, learned about what we were doing, and then started spreading the story. Um, like I said, you know, uh, had some success with salons, with spas, um, you know, with, with stores, you know, automotive stores would say, hey, you know, we think we can sell this water um, because of the story it, it holds. Really tried to explore um, the creativity. You know, I felt like a lot of charities just, it was boring, you know, it was like an appeal letter and then you gave money and then they wrote another appeal letter and and then they wrote another appeal letter, and, and it just felt like this sort of same regurgitated story. So we tried to find new ways to engage people. We said, how about um, $20 e-cards, you know, something that's normally free, but let's charge people $20, and you could send a Valentine's Day card to someone else, and 100% of that money would go build a well, and then we could connect two people to the finished product when it was done. So um, I was lucky early on to get an amazing designer come on board, take a pay cut to be with us and just design all this beautiful collateral. This was the Easter campaign. You know, building two wells at a pop, every one of these. Mother's Day, 2007. This year we raised 17,000 with the e-cards, and the moms actually got to choose where their $20 went. So your mom could choose Honduras or Africa or India um, that we've since expanded into. Um, we've really been good at getting free advertising, 
This is um, an image an intern actually came up with. It really resonated with all of us. And um, we thought said pretty well, you know, what, uh, what's going on? 4,500 kids dying every single day from bad water. And, um, you know, we flyered the city with 1,500 of these for World Water Day. Um, this is an ad. Um, we just got Wired magazine to donate an ad. This was in Interview magazine a couple months ago. So really trying to explore creativity and, and putting this out. Um, by If you do things with excellence, you'd be surprised at, at how many people will, will give, give space. The PSA that you guys saw looping, um, this is an amazing story. This, what you're about to see, would have cost about $300,000 if someone else did it. And it started with an idea of just trying to connect people um, in New York to, to, again, to the swamps and the ponds and rivers and said, well, let's uh, actually get New Yorkers to go up into Central Park Pond and show what that would look like. I met the director of Hotel Rwanda in a restaurant and I told him the idea and I sort of said, hey, would you shoot this? You know, we're going to have absolutely no money. Um, but he loved the idea. And, and the next thing you know, we had um, Oscar winner Jennifer Connelly and her two kids. And we had Ellen Curris, um, who was the cinematographer for the last Scorsese movie and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And this award-winning crew of about 60 people that came on and made this thing for about $4,000. Um, and then, um, I'll just play it for you in a second, but we, we got a debut on American Idol Gives Back, which is about $1.5 million of time. Um, the 60 seconds online, and it was seen by 35 million people. So um, this is our first PSA. show you guys one more video. This is another amazing story. This is a famous commercial director, award-winning director in London that went to the Central African Republic to see some of our wells, shot, produced it, did the whole thing for zero dollars. Um, another few hundred, probably a $250,000 piece um, in this commercial. And this is actually um, one of the countries that um, the local campaign is going to be supporting and, and the actual drillers that you'll see are the guys who are, um, are going to be doing some of the liquid wells. We do use water in large quantities. You know, water is essential to life. Without water, there is no life.
to life. Without water, there is no life. I'm just going to breeze through a couple other opportunities um, that God's made possible in the last couple of years. Um, we've done installations in stores. Theory, the designers, um, put our photos and jerry cans in their stores in New York, in Paris, in Tokyo, in Aspen, in L.A. Sold $70,000 of T-shirts for the people of Ethiopia. Um, we've done exhibitions. This was for PhotoFest in Houston. Um, we've had individuals step up. Um, seven-year-old kid raised 2100 bucks, um, just you know, taking this story, taking water around to his friends, half of a well. This guy, Steve Saba, is a tax accountant, the last person that you would think you know, that would be excited about building wells in Africa. And through selling bottles of water to everyone that came in for a tax return, he sold $210,000 of water in the last 14 months. And it single-handedly funded 50 villages in Liberia. And then it made sense because he knew how much everybody made and he knew how much they gave away. <laughs> um, we do in a big event. Tim was at our event this year um, in the Metropolitan Pavilion. We got Shaka Khan to sing, Cat Power to sing this year, raised $540,000. We just finished a partnership with Saks Fifth Avenue. Um, you know, my wildest dreams, I didn't think this young, we could get a huge retailer um, to partner with us, and, and they just embraced it. They embraced water so much, they shot Mother's Day and Father's Day catalogs completely in water, started selling $5 bracelets um, at 108 stores, and they actually did an installation in the windows of Fifth Avenue. Armani went down, and 50 jerry cans and photos of people drinking dirty water around the world went up for seven days. And in about a month and a half, they raised $500,000 for Wells. We've gotten a ton of press. Um, we've never hired an agency, but um, people have just come to us and started writing about what we're doing. We've expanded now into 12 different countries. We have nine partners out there drilling wells for us, India, Bangladesh, Honduras, and eight in Africa, and um, have raised an astonishing $5.1 million in less than two years. That's allowed us to fund 633 water projects um, that have started. Next month, uh, we go up to about 800. So it's just the beginning. Um, I've got one great miracle money story. There have just been so many miracles along the way. You know, we get stuck with administrative funding all the time. It's really easy to raise money for wells, and to pay a staff of now six or seven is a little harder. And, um, you know, we've been running it sort of six or seven weeks in the bank, and, you know, the staff just sort of gets together and prays. And, um, this week, uh, at about one in the morning, I was sitting um, in bed on my laptop, and... You know, there was this donor that I had just pitched out of the blue, um, a dot-com guy, and said, hey, I'd love to tell you about what we're doing. And he came in and met me and, you know, spent maybe an hour and a half with him. And he said, hey, I need your wire transfer details. We're going to, you know, make a, a gift. And I'm thinking 10 grand, maybe 25 grand. And I get this email at 1 in the morning, and he says, I've just wired 1M into your account for administrative funds. And uh, we went from six weeks to about 13 or 14 months just like that, um, as an answer to prayer. And, and that kind of stuff happens all the time. It's amazing. Um, I, uh, I feel so lucky, really, to be able to, to do this. And, and it's been awesome seeing the contacts, you know, from 10 years. You know, the same guys that were buying bottles of vodka are buying wells. Um, the same clubs, you know, we just threw an after party and got a $5,000 uh, check from, from the club, you know, that we used to work at. So it's really been awesome um, to be a part of this. And I hand it back over to Tim. Thank you guys for having me, and thank you guys for being a part of this. Um, yeah, I say if you want to get, you know, if you want to see God do something or you want to get involved in ministry, just look for what God's already doing. I hope you got the sense of what God is already doing. You know, we're just privileged to be a part of that, and uh, it is our honor our thrill to be uh, one of the signature churches kind of now getting involved our name is liquid church after all so there's a little bit of connection and what we are doing is we are going to be partnering with charity water to dig this summer as a church one church 
as many wells as we can in villages all over sub-Saharan Africa, specifically in Uganda and in Ethiopia and in Central African Republic. And some of those are going to be freshwater wells, but we're going to do these together as a church and hopefully do together because I don't have one M personally, but hopefully do together uh, what none of us could do alone. You know, it's one thing to just kind of write a check, but what if we came together? What if we partnered together? And when I first spoke with Scott, I was shocked. Just that, I mean, $5,000 can drill one well. That's 400 people, clean water, for literally 20 years. I mean, that's $5,000. And, and, and when I think of that, it's like, you know, what, what could God do? And so as we talked about it, we were like, well, we can commit. We haven't really budgeted for this. And we we're like, we're going to commit to, you know, three wells because those are three areas of focus for us. But honestly, as I was kind of, just kind of listening to you speak, I'm kind of like... But what does God want to do? Maybe God has more in store for us than that. I mean, this is just, this is as organic as Scott. And, and my, my question is, you know, what, what does God want to do? What might God want to do in this service right now today? When Scott came, he said, I don't even want to talk about numbers or any of that kind of stuff. He's like, I, I just love that you guys have a heart for the world's poor, that it's not just about religion. And I'm like, that's, that's what we're about. So my question would be, we're going to, I don't know what's stirring in you. I watch those photos. I get everything from, every time I see that, Scott, I get aroused everything from anger to futility. Like what? This is a drop in a bucket. Um, and then realize that the worst thing you could do is be nothing. And Scott has come back in, in, in an amazing way, kind of redeemed and is redeeming that world that, that you've been a part of, which I love because faith isn't about cutting yourself off from the world. It's actually engaging it in a fresh new way. So we're going to, our offering that we receive today and in a few minutes, we're going to uh, collect and what we're going to ask some of you to do, or maybe you even feel that stirring in your heart. I don't know what the God stories are in your life, um, would be to give above and beyond, <laughs> you know, your regular tithing, the, the, what, what, what we give, what I give every week, uh, you know, just to support the work of, of liquid, but we want to engage and we want to be able to say, you know what? We're not just a local church concerned with our stuff, covering our expenses, but we want to give extravagantly because that's what Christ did for us. So we're going um, to give today, and, and the question is not really so much what do we want to do, but what does God want to do? And, um, and so I'm going to call our ushers forward to receive our offering today and just remind you of just something totally clear. I want to be real clear about this. this. This is about compassion, not guilt. If you feel any of those twinges of guilt, you just keep, keep your money. God doesn't need guilt money. What he needs is, is generosity of heart and of spirit and to say, you know what, I'm in and I can make a difference and together we're going to do something, God's going to do something incredible. So, so it doesn't matter if it's $25 or if it's $5,000. Um, maybe you want to say, you know what, I'm going to do a village. I'm going to, I'm going to dig a well myself. <laughs> but we're going to do that together. If you have checks, you can make them out to Liquid Church because we're going to do over the course of the series is really do this together and then we're going to culminate it in a party on the green that Pastor Tom will tell you about on August 2nd. So can, uh, let's, uh, let's thank Scott once again. First off, for coming, Scotty. Thank you so much, my friend. That's awesome. That's awesome. Appreciate it. Awesome. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, that, um, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done in Scott's life. Just personally, God, we just love seeing that. A life changed and now world changing. Your kingdom coming. Lord, the sick being healed because of compassion. And we just realize we are your hands and your feet. So, Lord, just um, we want to honor you with our lives, and we just thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.